Morning, Bethel. All right. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the sermon passage this morning, Psalm 73. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 485. So it's Psalm 73, page 485 in the Pew Bible. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. All right, so Psalm 73, this is a psalm of Asaph. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning, starting in verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have, been I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Morning, Bethel. All right, so we are in the middle of a series, um, Summer in the Psalms for the Fight of Faith. And so far we've looked at a few different psalms and a few different issues that um, so often in our unbelief we are overcome with guilt rather than freedom and a clear conscience um, so often rather than a peaceful heart and a loving heart we give way to anger um, so we looked at guilt and faith from psalm 32 we looked at anger and faith 
from Psalm 37. We looked at depression and faith. That can really lay hold of us and kind of paralyze us. Um, and last week, we looked at fear and faith in Psalm 56. So this morning, um, we're going to look at envy and faith from Psalm 73. So each week, it's some issue and faith because this is one battle. There's one fight. It's the fight of faith, but it's got lots of different fronts. So it can be anger issues or contentment issues or whatever, but the issue is actually a faith issue at the heart. So um, if you're not there already, turn to uh, Psalm 73, because we're going to be working through that psalm this morning. So I want you to think about your mind's reaction, your heart's reaction um, to these statements here. God is willingly, proactively, relentlessly after your deepest satisfaction and contentment in Him. He wants deepest contentment and satisfaction at the deepest heart level for you. You believe that? Listen to Psalm 1611. At God's right hand is fullness of joy. Or in His presence is fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or listen to Jesus. John 635. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never ever hunger. Whoever believes in me will never ever thirst. This soul hunger, this soul thirst is totally satisfied for those who trust in Jesus. But still, we just seem to be spring-loaded to chase after the wind. Anybody? <laughs> I love what John Piper says in the beginning of his book, Future Grace. Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. I love it, but it's convicting because it's true, right? We're so easily, we're so quick to turn from the substance, the soul-satisfying substance of all that Christ is for us because of the gospel. We turn away from the substance and we run after the shadows. So no wonder we're not satisfied. If we're chasing after the wind, <laughs> we're not chasing after God, of course, we're going to be empty. And if we're empty, no wonder we look around and give way to envy because it seems like somebody else is full and I'm so aware of my emptiness. So the issue is a faith issue. It's us in relation to God and all that he is. So listen to this quote by um, a guy named Deverne Fromke. Believers may not often realize it, but even as believers, we are either centered in man or centered in God. There is no alternative. Either God is the center of our universe and we have become rightly adjusted to him, or we have made ourselves the center and are attempting to make all else orbit around us and for us. When the truth dawns, we are amazed to discover how the snare of making all things to revolve around man has been our bane. When the center is wrong, 
then everything in our reckoning is wrong. Just throws everything off. So we need to fight the good fight of the faith to embrace what we know is true so that we can be satisfied in God and envy is driven away. Um, But man, we know this struggle. I imagine we all resonate with this struggle. And thankfully, God gives us a path to follow. We're not alone in this. So Asaph, spiritual leader in Israel, struggled mightily with envy. And uh, maybe for some of you, this is a a psalm you've returned to time and again. I know I have. Um, It's so real, and it's so helpful and encouraging. So um, real to our struggles and temptations and challenges, but so helpful kind of beating a path out of the kind of mire of envy. All right, so let's dive in here. Before we do, I just want to pray uh, briefly here along the lines of the psalmist in Psalm 90. Oh God, would you please satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love so that we may rejoice and be glad in you all our days. We need your grace to receive these words and believe them so that we experience them. I need grace to be helpful and to help make things clear and not say anything that would be unhelpful. Lord, I pray that the kind of reorientation that happened for Asaph would happen on the spot for us this morning. And also, I pray that we would be taught to fish, as it were, so that when we are struggling and totally disoriented, we would remember the path that Asaph laid out for us from his own experience so that we can walk it in the future as well when we get disoriented. So Lord, please help us for your great namesake. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so... Psalm 73, uh, there's three points on the outline. You'll see um, on the slides, there's also an outline in your bulletin, if that's helpful. So first off, knowing what is true in verse 1. Asaph starts off and says, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So the psalmist, like I said, Asaph, he's the spiritual leader among the people of God, and he begins this psalm with a statement that he knows to be true. Surely God is good to his people, to those who are pure in heart, his people who love him with a whole heart. Um, Pure in heart here is similar to what Jesus said in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Um, What that speaks of, I think sometimes we can maybe think um, just in the realm of, well, not giving way to lust or something like that. Okay, that certainly is included, but it means you have an undivided Loyal, whole heart, whole focus on God. So when our heart's not pure, we're divided. We kind of want two different things. We're double-minded, you could say. So in James 4, the the kind of remedy to double-mindedness or divided heart is to draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Make it pure and single and whole. 
Purify your hearts, you double-minded. So you and I, we know God is good to his people, right? But you probably also know that knowing something in your head sometimes means very little (laughs) in our actions and attitudes and whatnot, right? So faith is not merely intellectual assent to facts about God. It's more than that. You can know something that's, that's true, you know it's true in your head, and you still believe something very different. So when we envy and covet, when we grumble and complain, when we lust for forbidden things, our real functional beliefs are actually going public. So we can know something that's true and yet end up believing and being controlled by what seems to be true. Can you relate to that? (laughs) Certainly Asaph can. Look at where he goes in verses 2 to 14. He is believing what seems to be true. Verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So God's good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's true, but as for me, I wasn't believing it. So Asaph was struggling with a divided heart. He wanted what the wicked had. God and his goodness wasn't enough. So here's the spiritual leader charged to minister before the ark of the Lord, to give thanks and praise to the Lord, and he's envious of the wicked. (laughs) So if you've ever struggled with a divided heart, if you struggle with envy, it might be encouraging to see that a godly leader in Israel did too. So he says, I saw the prosperity of the wicked and I was envious. That word that's translated prosperity in verse 3 is actually the Hebrew word shalom, or peace, right? But when we talk about peace, we tend to refer to kind of a mental or emotional sentiment or feeling of calm, um, which that can be part of it, certainly. But when the Bible talks about peace, it's much broader and more robust than that. Okay, so when the Bible talks about peace, it's talking about human flourishing All is as it should be. So think about applications in all spheres of life. So physically, relationally, communally, politically, economically. So everything was peace, peace in the garden when everything was perfect. We've wrecked the peace. But when you know peace from the Lord, when you have peace from the Lord, when... when, um, There is shalom. There's this holistic flourishing that takes place. So in light of that, notice what Asaph is saying. He's saying that the wicked know shalom, prosperity, holistic prosperity, more than he does. He's envious of their flourishing because he feels like he's languishing. That's what seems to be true. That's what what seems to be happening. So again, can you relate to that? I know I have. So if you ever watch the news, whether it's sports stars or music stars or politicians or whatever, people that are arrogant and wicked and they prosper, and you're trying to follow Jesus and you're languishing, you know, or maybe it's at work, you watch some arrogant prig get promoted while you were overlooked, or friends who couldn't care less about God and they find love 
Or they get pregnant and you're lonely and barren. God is good to His people, but it sure doesn't seem like it, at least not for me. What gives? Like, what's the deal? So it's easy to know that God is good to His people and yet think that it must just be true for others and not for you. Truly God is good to His people, but as for me, well, I guess it's just not true for me. So you can doubt it in general, but you can also just doubt it personally. And we can end up giving way to self-pity and we wallow, which self-pity is just wounded pride, isn't it? Right? I thought I deserved better. It's kind of the subtext there. So he's envious of the wicked. And look at how he describes their prosperity, their shalom. Look at verse 4. They have no pangs until death. You might want to note that time frame. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That might not seem like the most enviable description to you. But in, in that day, if you had a little extra meat on your bones, it meant that you had means. So this is like being healthy and strong. They're not in trouble as others are. Verse 5, they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. So they're free from common burdens and ills. They seem to be just carefree. And they're wicked. And Asaph is righteous and he's struggling. Like, how's that fair? So can you relate to that? But that's not all. These people, they're proud. They're proud of it. Look at verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. <laughs> Which again, this is so weird. Some of these metaphors for us, we just don't quite talk this way. It sounds like he's envying bug-eyed hippopotami. You know, like that's not the issue. This is a metaphor that probably means their eyes sparkle due to their prosperity. Okay? So their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens. Their tongue struts through the earth. So they're fat and happy and carefree, and they know it. They're walking around talking like they own the place. Got this damnable God complex, and God doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. And then, to add insult to injury, they're popular. And some, even among some of God's people, look at verse 10, therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. God's people turn back to them and find no fault in them. So the very thing that's troubling Asaph, the prosperity of the wicked, is actually attractive to some of God's people. What? Talk about turning the knife. So it adds to his frustration as perplexity. Can you relate to any of that? So instead of turning away from following them, they turn, some of God's people are turning to them and have no problem with them. Verse 11, and they, the arrogant wicked, say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? So again, these arrogant, wicked folk flaunt their prosperous, practical atheism. I mean, if God does exist, they reason from their very prosperity. It must be evidence that he doesn't know or he doesn't care. So Asaph is envious because of the Shalom of the wicked. They're fat and happy and carefree and arrogant and popular. And so here's his conclusion about them. Verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. They're just getting away with it. I mean, look, behold. 
They're always at ease. They're carefree. They've got plenty of means to do whatever their selfish hearts desire. So I imagine you relate to this, but let me just map in a few phrases that I find kind of rising up in my head and sometimes on my tongue, or I've heard plenty of others use them as well. And I think they're tip-offs that we are in the same disoriented place that Asaph was in. So whenever we're believing what seems to be true rather than what is true, we might say things like, oh, must be nice. Is that sentiment ever on your tongue? You look around. Something you want is taken away or withheld, and then you look around and see others that just have it. Something that should be easy and is easy for so many is very, very hard for you. Others are not struggling like you. They have what you want, and maybe they have it in spades. They don't even appreciate it. Oh, must be nice to have. Or to not have this. We've got to beware of that sentiment. It is like cancer in the soul. Or how about this one? If only. If only I had. If only I could. If only I didn't have to, you know, like these other people. Or how about the of course sentiment? (laughs) So you get a little, you know, get knocked around a little bit. You get a little cynical. And then something else happens and you're like, oh, of course. Of course, this is what happens to me, and you look around, and everybody else got it. They're doing fine. What is the subtext underneath that? What are you saying about God when, what are we saying about God when when we say that kind of thing? To get some kind of sick pleasure out of making us miserable? Do you believe that? Might seem like that's true, but do you really believe that's true? Look at how Asaph bottom lines it. In verse 13, he says, All in vain I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Actually, there's a word that's not translated for some reason. ESV doesn't pick it up. Um, It's the word truly, the same word that started this psalm out. Truly God is, is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's true, even though I'm not feeling it right now. In fact, here's what, what I'm feeling like is true. Truly, I'm wasting my time. It's all in vain. Truly, all in vain, I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Doesn't seem to be doing any good. I thought God was good to the pure in heart. Here I am, keeping my heart clean, washing my hands, so internal, external, all of life. Or for us, you know, here I am denying myself and taking up my cross and following Jesus. And what do I get? Can you relate? Verse 14. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. So this is what I get, God? So this is how you treat your children? What's up with this? I deserve better than this. At least the wicked don't deserve the ease and prosperity that they're experiencing. Come on. So do you see the psalmist's heart was not pure? It was divided, and it affected everything. So how he assessed those around him and how he assessed the value of following God 
was affected. He was walking by sight and not by faith. And he was spiraling down as a result. So truly God is good to his people, but sure doesn't seem like it. Truly I've kept my heart pure in vain. What seems true is that the enemies of God are enviable and the children of God are to be pitied. That's what seems to be true. So anybody relate to that? I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but I imagine we relate to this, right? So what do you do when you're here? Where do you go? When you're struggling like this, where do you go? I think so often what we do is we feed rather than fight our bitterness and our self-pity. We nurse our discontent and our envy. We feel justified in it. We embrace and sometimes kind of multiply those ugly sentiments. Must be nice, if only, of course, you know. We oftentimes look in and we wallow and we lick our wounds. We look around and we feed our bitterness and envy because it's just not fair, not fair, not fair. Or how about this one? We go all spin doctor on ourselves. You do this? And say things like, I never get a break. Or just once I'd like to dot, dot, dot. Or why can't I? All I'm asking for is, is that really so much to ask? We're spinning things. We're lying to ourselves. We're kind of feeding this unbelief and discontent. So, whew, like, do you want to pull out of that tailspin? <laughs> um, I'm sure we've all been in it. What breaks you out? Like, what breaks in and breaks you out of that tailspin? Well, now Asaph, thankfully, finally comes to his senses, and in doing so, he shows us out of this dangerous, godless spiral down into oblivion. He shows us the path out. So watch where he goes. Verse 15, this is the beginning of his reorientation. So he's now going to explain how he experienced what's true. He's believing what is true. He's not being subject to what seems to be true. He is believing what is true, and he's experiencing it as real, that God is good, and that God is his greatest good. And certainly he's ours as well. So the rest of the psalm, believing what is true. Look at verse 15. If I had said or spoken out like this, I would have betrayed the generation of your people. So especially because he's a spiritual leader, there is a time for silence with struggling faith. You don't just kind of vomit on everybody around you. Because you need to fight the good fight of the faith internally. That doesn't mean we, we you know, are fake and stoic and kind of become plastic facade Christians. Not at all. It just means that we need to fight this unbelief because it's ugly and we could actually cause other people to stumble if we're not careful. So Asaph was perplexed. He was blind to what was really true because he's looking around and he needed to get into God's presence and look up. So in the light of God's presence, he would be able to see everything more clearly. He'd be able to walk 
by faith and not by sight. So verse 16, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. So all these struggles and questions, they're wearing them out until he got into God's presence. This is the turning point. He went into the sanctuary. So what does that, does that mean, this building? What does that mean? What's the equivalent for us? What's the place of God's presence? The sanctuary or the temple was where God met with his people in the Old Testament, right? It's where they worshipped him. It's where, through his word, he communicated to them. It's how they gained his perspective. And so for us, so, so what happened in the, the sanctuary? What happened in the temple? How do you actually come into God's presence in order to gain his perspective and get reoriented? Well, we can't just blow into his presence as sinners, right? So the temple made it possible for us to actually dwell with God and not be consumed. So there's this veil, there's an ark. What was in the ark? The law of God. So when God meets people, he's a king, he has a law. We've broken that law. Oh no, like we're in trouble. So there was a mercy seat on top of that ark and there was blood splattered once a year on the Day of Atonement, to make atonement for all of our failings to keep the law so that God could dwell with his people without consuming them. You see? So how do we meet with God on this side of the cross, on this side of the incarnation? Why did Jesus say, tear this temple down and I'll rebuild it in three days? Because he is the temple. He is the presence of God come down to earth. How do we meet with God? How do we be reconciled with God? It's only through Jesus. He is the temple. He's the high priest. He's the mercy seat. It's his blood that provides atonement for our sin so that God's wrath is gone. We can be reconciled to God. And so all of his promises, all that he is for us, is ours through Jesus and our future is radiantly bright because God is for us and not against us. And so we can come with confidence into the throne of grace. It's a throne of grace, not a throne of judgment because Jesus' blood covers our sins and we're reconciled to God. We can come with confidence because we have this great high priest into the presence of God to receive mercy and grace to help us in our need when we are totally disoriented. And we get reoriented by believing the gospel. So some of you might be disoriented this morning, maybe because you've never trusted Jesus, and you can come to him this morning, be reconciled to God, and know the kind of peace that passes understanding because all your sins are forgiven, and you are now safe forever, you have a future and a hope. God is for you, not against you. You can turn from your sin and trust in Jesus today. It's awesome. If you have questions, I'd be happy to talk to you afterwards. But for those of us who are believers, we still know how prone we are to wander. And you may have come in disoriented this morning, just like Asaph was. 
Again, you've come to the right place not because this is some holy room, but because we're running to God in his word. He's present with us by his spirit, and we're hearing the gospel so we can get reoriented. This is how we fight the good fight of the faith. We believe the gospel in spite of how we feel. Remember that quote that I've used once or twice in the series by Eric Tonus. There's this idea that to live out of conformity with how I feel is hypocrisy. But that's a wrong definition of hypocrisy. To live out of conformity to what I believe is hypocrisy. To live in conformity with what I believe in spite of how I feel isn't hypocrisy, it's integrity. That's the fight of faith. So, May we all be reoriented like Asaph was. His perspective that was way too short-sighted, it got expanded when he got into God's presence. He saw the end of the wicked. His envy melted away. So you remember when Jesus in Matthew 7, he gives the uh, two ways, the enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, and then the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So imagine yourself on the narrow, hard way, which is what we are if we're Christians following Jesus, right? If you just don't look at the end, if you just look at the path and you look over at, you know, coworkers or friends or neighbors or whatever, you know, and man, look at, they've got it so easy on the path. It's all soft and flat and, you know, level and, and I'm tripping and skinning my knee and breaking my ankle. And, and all of a sudden, you're just all envious. I mean, what are you going to tell me? Hey, buddy, like, lift your gaze a little bit and look at the end. The destination changes everything. This easy, wide path is going off a cliff into oblivion. It's not enviable. Hard, narrow path leads to life. Eternal life, fullness of joy, pleasures evermore. (laughs) That's what's happening here for Asaph. He moves from knowing what's true in his head. He's believing instead what seems true all around him. And now in the light of God's presence, he's experiencing, he's really seeing it with the eyes of faith, what is indeed true. That word truly shows up again. You see it there in verse 18. It's the third time. Truly, you set them in slippery places. Remember, my foot had almost slipped. No, 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 no. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. God's in charge, not them. Verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment. Isn't that interesting how his timetable changed? It was always at ease, you know, everything's good for them. Oh no, this is, they're destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, oh Lord, you rouse yourself. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. That word phantoms could be translated as images. So Alec Motier, um, Old Testament commentator, says this image here in the sense, a shape and nothing more than a shape, a cardboard cutout with no solidity their precious image that seemed to be so real, so impressive, so enviable that is now shown for the insubstantial sham it really is in the light of God's presence, in the light of his truth. 
So the prosperous so-called wicked seemed to be so substantial and worthy of envy before, but in reality, they are mere shadows. They're not enviable. They're pitiable. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart. He's got a totally new interpretation of what happened. God wasn't the problem. Those around him were not the problem. He was the problem. He was his problem. And he sees now that he was acting in a beastly way. Look at verse 22. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. So he's seen the wicked in a new light. They're actually the ones on the slippery slope. He now sees himself in a new light. That previous unbelief, because of what seemed true, it's beastly. This terrible no-confidence vote to the goodness of God, which is a lie. And now the climax of his reorientation, he doesn't just see the wicked more clearly and see himself more clearly, he sees God and his relationship to God in a whole new light with clear eyes of faith. God is not just good to his people. God is our good. That's what we need to believe. That's what we need to experience. And it all comes through entering the presence of God. We do that through Jesus. Remember, again, Hebrews 4. We can come with confidence to receive mercy and grace to help us in our need. Look at verse 23, how he talks now that he's walking by faith and not by sight. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. I'm not alone. This life is hard. The road is hard, but you're with me. You hold my right hand. I'm satisfied. I'm content. I'm safe. I'm secure. I don't have anything to fear. Why would I envy those who are on the fast track to hell? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I've got my sovereign shepherd's hand. He's a good shepherd, and he's holding my hand the whole way. The wicked can't say that. They can gain the whole world, and they forfeit their souls. That's no envious position. That is to be pitied, not envied. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel. All through this life, you, you're not silent. You, you guide me with your counsel. And afterward, this is my end, you will receive me to glory. Look at all we have as believers. That's what he's trying to say is, look at all I have. Look at, I, I can see it now. We have God's counsel to guide us. The wicked don't have that. They're on their own. They've rejected his wisdom. And he will receive us to glory. We won't be rejected or forsaken. On the last day, we will not hear, depart from me, I never knew you. We will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. The wicked do not have that. And so that's what I have. That's who I have. So verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. God is everything. This is, this is like Paul said the same thing. When all of a sudden the light went on in the Damascus road, he was blinded in order to be able to see. And everything else that he used to count as gain, you know, this impressive resume, spiritually speaking, he counted it as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ as his Savior. 
And so he was able to say to, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what the psalmist here is saying. Whom have I in heaven but you? On earth I desire none besides you. I don't have any other gods besides you. You are my God. You are the source of all my good. You are my good. You are my greatest good. So is it just possible that we could begin to sincerely, lovingly, humbly pity those who prosper in the world's definition of the term? Like if we're really sick and they're healthy, if we are struggling financially and they're successful, could this so sink in? Imagine you're a Christian, economic trouble, lose a job, lose your house, you know, retirement goes up in smoke or whatever. Or it could be cancer comes in or some other physical maladies and you're in conversation with someone who is just seems totally put together, some fat retirement, no worries, perfect health, good genes, low cholesterol, low blood pressure, no acid reflux, no arthritis, no aches and pains. They're in great shape. They've got the beach house and the kids who graduated from Ivy League schools with honors and great jobs and big cities and on and on. And they don't have Jesus. Would you pity them and want to love them and give them what they really need? Or would you go away from the conversation just going, Oh my goodness, like, oh. In the light of God's presence and all His goodness, all that He is for us through Christ, verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but you can't take my greatest good from me. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. They're on a slippery slope. Nothing to... Nothing to be envious of. For behold, behold, look at this. He's, he's starting to preach the gospel to other people. He's preaching the truth before he knew he needed to keep his mouth shut because he was acting like a beast. And he'd drag people down and be a stumbling block. Now he's saying, hey, look at this. Those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you, but for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. I want everybody to know how good you are so that they're satisfied in you, so that they don't envy what seems to be true, which is just a, a mirage. It's an illusion. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It's true enough. It is not in vain to keep your heart pure and follow Jesus. True enough. But this psalm, God decided to put this psalm in the canon. I think it's even better than that. Listen, truly God is good to His people, even those like you and me who so often are divided in heart. He's good to us. So prone to wander and get blinded by what seems true. He's good to reorient us because He wants to give us more of Himself. He's good to the divided in heart. 
He wants to reorient us. He wants to purify our hearts so that we can be satisfied in Him, so we can have durable joy that's out of reach of our circumstances. So isn't it encouraging that God wanted this beastly example to be in the Bible so that we could see, oh, I guess it's normal to struggle. But we don't glorify the struggle. We also see the path out. And it's so helpful because I want to be satisfied in God. He's now beautifully reflecting the worth of God at the end of this psalm. So we've all known and been the beast. (laughs) And we may despair of ever beautifully reflecting God's worth, but here's the path. Let's follow Asaph on the path, get into God's presence in the light of his grace, in light of the gospel. We see everything clearly and we start to walk by faith. This is the fight of faith. So I pray that it happens to us this morning for those of us who are disoriented as we come in. But also I hope we see this pattern so that we can live this pattern whenever we do find ourselves disoriented. So I want to close with this quote by Jonathan Edwards. I love it. He wrote this little essay called The Christian Pilgrim. You know, we're all en route, hard road, but the end is worth it. And God is with us the whole way. And here's what he says about God being our good. He says, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Therefore, it becomes us to spend this life as a journey towards heaven, as it becomes us to make the seeking of our highest end and proper good, God himself, the whole work of our lives to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? Why should we chase after vanity, vanity, emptiness, shadows, when we can chase after God, the substance, and be satisfied in Him. We can learn the secret of contentment, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. He's our good, and He will do us good all the way home. He wants to satisfy our souls because He is the bread of life, And whoever comes to him will never, ever hunger. Whoever believes in him will never, ever thirst. Let's pray. Oh God, you are good. And you do good. You have been so mercifully good to us to take people like us who have
turned away from you to all kinds of husks and ashes. Saying with our turning that you just don't satisfy, that you just aren't worth it, that you're not enough. Rather than giving us what we deserve, just saying to hell with you. Rather than giving us what we foolishly wanted, we thank you that in your mercy you came after us. And that Jesus did everything necessary to make it possible for us to be reconciled, to, to pay for the, the guilt and the penalty of all that wretched rejection of you. All that wretched chasing after lesser things as if they could satisfy. So we thank you that you did that. We thank you that you want to satisfy our souls with yourself. And I pray that you would do it this morning and that you would teach us to follow this path to get reoriented whenever we start to walk by sight and not by faith. We pray it for the glory of your great name and in Jesus' name. Amen.